Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. What the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. We want to welcome everyone to our seventh week of our study of the first several chapters of Genesis. We're going to go one more week. Uh, Thank you for listening in. Uh, We're going to look this week in Genesis 3, but before we do that, we're going to actually go to 1 Corinthians 3. It's a passage that's been relevant to everything we've been talking about, but we haven't been able to get it into our study. And we're going to see something in this passage that I think you'll recognize. And I'm going to ask you, okay, what did you see? Tell me what it is. But 1 Corinthians 3, we're going to look at verses 6 through 8 to start with. So if somebody wants to read 1 Corinthians 3, verses 6 through 8. Uh, I'm out of the NRSV. Uh, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. The one who plants and the one who waters have a common purpose, and each will receive wages according to the labor of each. Very briefly, the context here is the division in the church in Corinth. And one of the divisions was some follow Apollos, who was a, a Jewish evangelistic leader in the early church. And some say, I follow Paul. And Paul's like, look, we're both doing the same work here. Let's move on. But what kind of imagery is this? First Corinthians 3, Paul's using what kind of imagery to describe the founding of the church? A garden. It's garden. It's a garden imagery. The planting of the church is like the planting of a garden. Okay, now let's continue. First Corinthians 3, verses 9 through 15. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 9 through 15. I can, I can do it. Thank you. Uh, this is New King James. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. 14, if what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. So now, what kind of imagery is Paul using to describe the building of the church? It's a little more difficult, but maybe we're clued in. Is it temple? It's temple. He's he's describing, first he described the, the planting of the church with garden imagery. Then all of a sudden he quickly changed to, oh, by the way, you're God's building. Well, the only building it could be, that's verse nine, is a temple. And then look at how it's built. It's built with uh, gold and silver and precious stones. Oh, that reminds us of the garden and the, the jewels, especially the gold in the Garden of Eden. And now, it, well, we'll continue, but verses 16 and 17 kind of make it really obvious, to be honest with you. First Corinthians 3, verses 16 and 17, if somebody wants to read. I can get it. So don't you know that you, you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred, and you together are that that temple. So notice the imagery of garden and temple and how they're so easily interchangeable, which, as we've been saying all along, the Garden of Eden was a temple. It's the place of God's presence, and that, of course, is ultimately what Jesus is building. So just want to throw that out there. So today we're going to go to Genesis 3. And we're going to look at Adam and Eve and the temptation in the garden with the serpent. Does anybody have any questions or things that they wanted to throw out before we got started? Genesis 3, verses 1 through 7. Any questions? Uh, just real quick, back on what we covered on, on the First Corinthians 3 part. In essence, that's the same imagery of John 14, then, in my father's house. Yeah, it's the same imagery of the temple, but the John 14 doesn't use the uh, garden. It's John 15 that does use, of course, Migrates to the garden, of course, with the vine and the branches. So, yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. Yep. yep. Yeah. Actually, John 13 through 17, the whole, the whole thing is a, is a temple scene. When Jesus washes the disciples' feet, he's preparing them for service in the temple. So even John 13 is temple imagery, which mm-hmm. is made explicit in 14, 15, 16, and 17. 
So, nice. yep. And then in the middle of that, you have I'm the vine and you're the branches. Ah, garden. There you go, land. So very good. All right, anybody else? So Genesis 3, we've made it. Can you believe it? Seven weeks, got to Genesis 3 now. Here we go. We could have obviously done it much faster, but we've been kind of doing Daniel and Revelation and everything else as we, as we kind of go along the process. Does somebody want to read verses 1 through 7 of Genesis chapter 3? I can. Thank you. Now the serpent was more cunning than any animal of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God really said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, you certainly will not die. For God knows that on the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will become like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took some of the fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves waist coverings. <clears throat> Excuse me. All right, thank you. Here we go. So we have this serpent entering the garden. The serpent was more crafty than any of the beasts of the field. And the word crafty, interestingly, is almost always used in the positive. It's the idea of wisdom and, and insight and knowledge. It's a good thing. He's a crafty. But of course, in the New Testament, we know this imagery of a serpent is going to be used by the New Testament to refer to the devil. So no problem there. Uh, the serpent, um, all right, let, let it be. The serpent speaks to the woman. So it says, the woman, uh, oh, sorry, verse one, he said to the woman, indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from it. What's interesting here, actually, and this is the fill in the blank, the word you is plural. He's not speaking, this, he's addressing Eve, but he's speaking to Adam and Eve. Right? And people make a big deal. It's true. Adam was standing right there. So that's, that's another issue there, whatever you want to do with that. Uh, and notice, of course, Eve's reply in verse two. Uh, from the fruit of the trees of the garden, we may eat of it. So this isn't just a serpent Eve dialogue. Adam is involved in the conversation, even though he's, he's being silent. Uh, next item. Here we go. Letter C. Uh, Eve changes the wording in three places. She says, uh, instead of, let me go back to the notes. It says, we may eat of it. Um, and you may eat freely is what God would told him in Genesis 2 verse 16. So she minimizes a little bit of the privileges. You can freely eat from any of the tree in the garden. She just says, well, we can eat of it. Genesis 2.17 says, you will surely die. And she says here, well, if we eat of that tree, we will die. And then she exaggerates the next one. She says, we shall not eat it or touch it. Whereas in Genesis 2.17, it only says, you shall not eat of it. Now, the serpent challenges God's word, letter D, and his motives. The serpent said, you will surely not die for God knows that in the days you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And again, this is where, all right, here we go. Verse uh, number one, I put down the New American Standard under there. It says, for God, but the Greek, the Hebrew says Elohim, it's plural, but it's got to be singular. And the reason why translating as for God as singular is correct is because the verb that follows it is singular, knows. So the verb matches the, um, the, the, the noun, the subject. The subject must be singular because the verb is singular. For God knows that in there you eat of it, your eyes will be open. And you'll be like Elohim. So does that mean you'll be like God or you'll be like the gods, knowing good and evil? Yeah, it's the Net Bible. It's the Net Bible. I don't know why I didn't put that on the notes. So the, the next one is Genesis 3.5 in the Net Bible. It says, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like divine beings who know good and evil. And again, the translations are going to kind of be stuck catering to what we wanted to say uh, ultimately. But the Net Bible is like, no, it's, it's not like we're going to be like God. It's gonna, we're going to be like the divine beings uh, knowing good and evil. No, Genesis chapter 3, verse 22 says, the man's become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And again, the us there is not trinitarian us as we commonly think it is the us there is god speaking to the divine council uh, and psalm 82 verse 1 i'll go ahead and read that if you want to turn there you can 
So just Psalm 82 verse one says, God takes a stand in his own congregation. He judges in the midst of the rulers. And the word for rulers is Elohim. So God judges in the midst of the, of the Elohim. So the point actually is you're going to be like the, the divine council. And remember, Adam and Eve were supposed to actually join the divine council. We'll, we'll get into this another time more detail. They were supposed to follow God's orders, do what God says, and become a member of the divine council. But the question is going to be, are they going to take orders from themselves, deciding right from wrong themselves, or in this case, listening to the serpent, or are they going to submit to God as the one who decides what right and wrong is? And we discussed that uh, a few weeks back. Does anybody have any questions on that as we move forward? Yeah, did you say Psalm 22? or Psalm 82. Psalm 82, 82 verse okay. Yep, Psalm 82, verse 1. Letter E, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil, letter F. And then the fill in the blank underneath that is this. Eve saw that the fruit has three virtues. And the word saw is going to be really, really important. Because remember, whatever happens here in the first three chapters of Genesis, the biblical authors are going to constantly be referring, referring back to it. So this word saw is going to be really important. She saw that the, food, that the fruit was, well, good for food, a delight to her eyes, and good for attaining wisdom. So it's like, well, why not? So she's, she's processing what the serpent's saying, and she's thinking, look, it's good for food. I'm hungry. It's a delight to the eyes. Okay, cool. And it's good for attaining wisdom. So, sure, why not? I mean, this is, what can go wrong here? And again, remember, the, the ultimate question is, are they going to decide, are they going to know good and evil because God tells them, or are they going to know good and evil because they decide to make their own rules or make their own determination what good and evil is? And I can't underemphasize under, under how significant this is throughout the biblical story, because what you have throughout the biblical story is humanity suffering the consequences of them being their own determiner of good and evil or of good and bad. It looks like in the book of Joshua, Judges, Old Testament, the book of Revelation, New Testament, that God's inflicting wrath upon them. But if you read the text carefully, God's actually allowing them to suffer the consequences of their own decisions. This is what happens when humanity's in power. We make wars, we and wars create famines, and we create bloodshed and we create violence and we create all kinds of inequities and injustices you know how could a loving god do this like god didn't do it folks we did this he's just allowing it to happen now of course the biblical authors are going to sometimes give god the credit for it but that's just acknowledging his the one who's ultimately sovereign and his credit is yeah he's allowing you to suffer the consequences of your own fate so does that makes sense anybody have any questions so she saw Good for food, delight to her eyes, and good for attaining wisdom. All right, now, here we go. Oh, by the way, seven times in Genesis chapter 1, 1 through 2, 3. So remember, we have kind of two creation accounts. Genesis chapter 1, the first creation account, which bleeds into the first three verses of chapter 2. That's the seventh day. And then Genesis 2, 4, kind of another creation account, which describes the formation of the animals after, after mankind and the formation of Eve from the side of Adam and so it kind of gives a little bit more detail on that. In Genesis chapter one, that first creation account, God saw seven times. It says, God saw that it was good. Now, Genesis three, verse six, the woman saw that it was good. Ah, she's making her own decision what good is instead of allowing God to do it. She takes and she gives. She took and she gave. Now, the interesting result is that they both, she gave some to Adam, and, uh, who was with her, and he also ate, letter uh, J. They both knew that they were naked. What's significant about that, actually, is that they recognize that they are no longer one. Adam and Eve's nakedness and not knowing that they were naked, it was because they were one. Think of it this way, you know, if you think of this from an ethics standpoint. You're not ashamed when you walk into a shower and no one's around right? Your own nakedness is not a matter of shame. When someone else walks in on your nakedness, you feel shame. I'm being exposed. Don't be in here. Adam and Eve didn't have any shame because they were one. 
So the fact that they recognize their nakedness is the biblical author's way of saying they are no longer one. So remember in John 17, Jesus is going to pray, I ask, Father, that, that they may be one, even as we are one. Ah, the unity in the church is going to replace or fulfill the unity that was ultimately intended in the garden. Now, don't take that so far that you start a cultic movement where everybody walks around naked. That's not what we're saying here. Uh, that's going too far. So, all right, verses 8 through 10, just very briefly, because this is relevant a little bit to what we're going to discuss later on. Somebody want to read Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God moving about in the orchard at the breezy time of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the orchard. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? The man replied, I heard you moving about in the orchard, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. So God is walking in the garden. And that word walking, depending on your translation, should say something like walking, is really important later on in the Bible. And we may or may not get to it right now. We have discussed it in past episodes, if, if you remember, you may not. Uh, where are you? And notice Adam answers the question. He says, I was afraid. And God didn't say, like, why are you hiding? He says, where are you? Adam's answering the wrong question. The question is like, where are you at? He's like, I was afraid. Uh, that doesn't answer my question. Where are you? I'm over here because I was. The implication is I'm over here because I was afraid. So he's hiding because he was afraid. Uh, very interesting. So now here we go. The next one on the blank is this under the section. What does this all mean? The answer is this. Humans go after the blessing in their own eyes. The first two fill in the blanks. Humans go after the blessing in their own eyes. So the first one is blessing. The second one is their own eyes. Instead of receiving the blessing from God. They go after the blessing in their own eyes instead of receiving the blessing from God. And that is the whole point of the biblical story from this point forward. Who makes the rules? Who decides right and wrong, good and bad? Who decides what, what it is? And the answer so far as that is we do. And when we do, well, we know how that works. Nations are power and military might, oppression, stepping on the little guy, uh, cheating, stealing, lying. We think of David uh, committing adultery, stealing someone else's wife, then killing that guy for stealing his wife. You think of Naboth's vineyard and uh, Ahaz uh, stealing his property, killing the man. This is what kings in power, those in power do. Well, actually, we're going to see a story of that in just a few minutes. What we want to do is we want to kind of, unless we have any questions, we're going to run through the biblical story just and give some examples of how this story keeps repeating itself. The idea is going to be we need a human who's going to come and be the seed of the woman, be the fulfillment of this, who's going to be tempted in a garden-like setting and yet be faithful. Who's going to say, you know what, God, I want you to decide what right from wrong is, which, by the way, is what wisdom is. So, this, so in other words, one way of looking at it is the Bible is nothing but wisdom literature. The whole biblical story is a story about wisdom. And the book of Proverbs is going to tell us the answer. In the book of Proverbs, it's the fear of the Lord that's the beginning of wisdom, but fools despise knowledge and instruction. So who is going to have the fear of the Lord and aim for wisdom from God versus who's going to decide to make the rules for themselves? Now, we can add to this a little bit and kind of let me add to the story just to kind of keep it out there for a little bit. What was supposed to happen in Eden was that Adam and Eve were going to enter God's presence. Remember, they were supposed to be image bearers. They were going to make God known to the created realm by imitating God in love and in actions. They were going to work the garden. And apparently, and I think the biblical story expands on this. And the Jewish literature definitely expands on this uh, long after this. Eden was going to expand and fill the earth. So there was a uh, garden. And in that garden was Eden. But it appears that Eden was going to expand and fill the earth. As humanity were faithful, were fruitful and multiplied and filled the earth, they were going to fill the earth and God's presence was going to go with them. But now, and we'll go through the rest of Genesis 3 later, they're expelled from the garden. And instead of Adam and Eve guarding the garden, remember they were supposed to guard the garden, the, the, the words of care and to, uh, cultivate the garden are language for what the priests do in prote protecting the, the temple. They're supposed to guard it. They didn't guard it. They let the serpent in. 
and now cherubim are placed at the entrance to the, to the garden and cherubim guard the garden from humanity. We can't access the garden because angels are not allowing us to enter it. So now God's going to have to say, okay, let me figure out how I'm going to do this. Let me, let me call somebody else to be the new Adam. And through that new Adam and new, maybe even a new Adam and Eve, I will bless them and they will be a blessing to the earth and the blessing will go out to the earth. Now, as we go through the Old Testament story, the way it kind of works is that Israel is going to be that place of blessing in the people of Abraham, the descendants of Abraham. Abraham's going to come to a place that God calls him. So Abraham, you come here, which is kind of like entering back into the garden. I'm going to be here. I want you to enter back in. They're supposed to be faithful to the covenant of promises. And what God tells Abraham is, I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth through you. But what was going to happen was the nations would come to Abraham. And then we know what happens. Abraham doesn't, isn't faithful. Okay, let's try it again. Let's call Moses. And then let's call you know, a prophet. Every time the story is continuing along, we're waiting to see who it is that's going to actually be faithful. And every time we think we got someone that's faithful, oh, they mess up. And ultimately, the one that has the most hope of anyone in the entire Old Testament scriptures, of anyone that has hope, it's Solomon. Truly Solomon. He's going to be this one who's wise. I think you most, most of you know the story we're going to look at in a few minutes. Solomon says, God, God says to Solomon, you can have anything you want, Solomon. What is it that you want? And anybody remember, what does Solomon ask for? Wisdom to guide the people. Wisdom. Ah, wisdom. he didn't decide to decide wisdom for himself. He said, I want you to give me wisdom. And so we're going to look at that story in more detail. So, oh, there we go. Finally, somebody does it. Solomon does what Adam and Eve should have done. And we think that Solomon's going to be the one who's going to solve this dilemma. So that's kind of your Old Testament in a nutshell. God's going to continue to call people to him. They're going to disobey. He's going to send them away. Call somebody else to him. They're going to disobey. He's going to send them away. Call somebody else coming into God's presence and then being sent out of God's presence. And being sent out of God's presence is what we call the exile. That's what the biblical story is all about. The ex you're, be you're being kicked out. You're being sent into exile. So, of course, the New Testament is going to come along. And Jesus is going to actually do what Adam and Eve, what Solomon, what Abraham, what Moses, what David could not do for themselves. Jesus actually comes and does it. And then Jesus says, now, you know what? I want you to go out to the world. So that's where the story changes. No longer does the church supposed to be like some isolated entity in Jerusalem or in some other city of the world. And the nations come to us. Instead, you go out to the nations. And so that's kind of the New Testament story or the distinction between the Old Testament story and the New Testament story. So let's go now looking a little bit further as we go. Genesis chapter 16, we're going to kind of cut. So the, gen the promise to Abraham is in Genesis 12. Actually, let's go to Genesis 12, even though it's not in your notes, because it's a good place to start. Genesis chapter 12. And this is the promise that God makes to Abraham. So for a little, but look like Noah, by the way, was going to be the one who was faithful, and then Noah messes up and isn't the one faithful either. So this is the covenant promise of the Old Testament that gets played out throughout the rest of the Old Testament scriptures. Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. The Lord said to Abram, go forth from the land of your kinfolks and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. All the communities of the earth shall find blessing in you. Right, so this is the great promise to Abraham and the Jewish people and the state, to Israel. And that is, I'll make you a great nation. I'll bless you. I'll make your name great. It's verse two. I'll bless those who bless you, curse the one who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. By the way, look at verse four. Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Oops. What does verse one say? Leave your relatives behind. Oops. So right away in verse four, we're like, oh, this ain't going to work. He brought Lot with him. He wasn't supposed to do that. Now, and we won't get into the details now, but of course, how much land and family means to people. Right, so now here's what happens. The problem is, is Abraham's an old man, and so is his wife, Sarah, and they don't have any kids. 
So this, I'll make a great nation from you promise is not looking too good right now. And again, the question is going to be, who is going to decide right from wrong, good and bad? Is it going to be themselves or God? God said, I'm going to make you a great nation. So I think you should just kind of sit back and trust him on this. Let him make the rules and let him fulfill this. But instead, what happens? Let's skip to Genesis chapter 16 now. So Genesis 16. So Genesis 16. And here's what happens. Uh, verses 1 and 2. So everyone read Genesis 16, verses 1 and 2. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had not borne him a child, but she had an, an Egyptian slave woman whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, See now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please have relations with my slave woman. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Ah. Uh, you want to go ahead and read verse three also, Anna? Sure. And so after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Abram's wife, Sarai, took Hagar the Egyptian, her slave woman, and gave her to her husband, Abram, as wife. Ah, uh, she took and she gave to Abram. Eve took and she gave to Adam. And what did Adam do? He listened to the voice of his wife. What does Abram do? He listens to the voice of his wife. The language here of Genesis 16 is full of the exact same language, if we're looking in the Hebrew, of Genesis chapter 3. Abraham and Sarah are doing what Adam and Eve did. Instead of waiting on God to fulfill his promise, remember, the idea was, eventually, Adam and Eve, you're going to be allowed to eat from that tree. Because you can't rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air unless you have wisdom. And the knowledge of good and evil, you have to know good and bad to be able to rule. So God's eventually going to say, go ahead and eat from it. But until then, you can't do it. So, but they take, she saw, she took, and she gave. And now Sarah saw, took, and gave. In fact, in verse four, it says that uh, Hagar went in, she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her sight. Ah, Sarah saw Hagar and was angry at it. So look at verse uh, six. Can I say something real quick? Yeah, please. So you mentioned something that was interesting. You said that you think eventually God would let them eat from the tree. Mm -hmm. Do we know that? Does it say that anywhere? Or we just it never says that. Yeah, correct. It never says that. It seems to be implied only because of the fact that in order to rule, they're going to need the knowledge of good, and, uh, of good and bad. And the fact that the fear of the Lord is the source of knowledge of good and bad. I'm, this is the theme throughout the biblical story. Hey, guys, you need this. You just need to get it from the fear of the Lord or by fearing the Lord and not by your own decision. So it's, that seems to make the most sense. And all the Jewish literature is definitely picking up on this also. So, okay, let's turn to uh, chapter 16, verse 6. Okay, go ahead. But Abram said to Sarai, look, your, sl your slave woman is in your power. Do to her what is good in your sight. So Sarai treated her harshly and she fled from her presence. Ah, uh, what does Abraham tell her to do? Do what is good in your own eyes. That's exactly what Eve said. She looked at it. She saw it. Hey, this is good. It's beautiful. It's good for food. Ah, I might as well take it. And Abraham's telling Sarah the same thing. And the book of Judges, remember the story in the Judges? I, you probably don't remember. I alluded to it one time. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes is the last verse of the book of Judges. This is the biblical story. Let me make sure I'm being clear. I, I hope I am. The biblical story is, how do we don't know good and evil or good and bad? Do we know it because we decide what's good, what's right and wrong ourselves, what's pleasing to our own eyes, or do we allow God to be the one who, who tells us what good and bad is, i.e. we have the fear of the Lord? Abraham and Sarah are like, you know, this is not going along. This is, it's been a long time. I know what we'll do. Hey, I got an idea. So why don't you take Hagar, technically by cultural laws, that child is your child. And by the way, Abraham like, even goes to God and says, hey, you know, why can't Ishmael be the one? He's my son. It's, it's a good thing. Why not? But nope, uh, not going to happen. We can continue on this passage and find more examples, but let's, let's move forward. Let's go now to 2 Samuel 7. I'm going to skip down on the notes. Okay, I have on your notes. In verse 10 of Genesis 16, he says to Hagar, I will multiply your descendants. By the way, Hagar is blessed. This whole notion that Hagar and Ishmael are cursed, they are not cursed. 
God blesses them and even says, he shall become a great nation. So this idea of the Jews and, and Arabs have always been waging war. It's like, that's not actually correct. I also, uh, verse chapter 18, verse nine, an angel or the angel of the Lord, God himself, whatever you want to say, appears to God and says, where is your wife? Uh, Adam, where are you? Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening to the podcast. We really appreciate it. And hopefully it's blessing you. Hey, do us a favor. If this is something that you are digging, if it's helping you, if it's uh, encouraging you, take a second just to like it, give it a review, give it you know, five stars if you think it's five star worthy, uh, share it with your friends. And we just want to get this out to more people. Uh, this isn't something that we're in for the bucks, but it's something that we want to encourage and equip people with. So do that, help us out. And now we'll get back to the podcast. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 10 through 16. So now this is David, the story of David. And David has finally conquered the city of Jerusalem. So if you're not aware, the city of Jerusalem was on the border between the northern and southern tribes. So when the Israelites conquered the land of what we call the land of Israel, the promised land, they are divided by 10 tribes, by 12 tribes. But those 12 tribes are kind of, in all honesty, a north-south division. And the north had 10 tribes and the south had two. And right on the border of those two, of those two tribes, of the north and south, was the city of Jerusalem. The, and the Israelites had never gained control of the city of Jerusalem until David finally gets it. So you've gone several hundred years, 400 years or so, from the conquest of Joshua until the time of David and, Je and the city of Jerusalem, what we'll call Jerusalem, was still in the hands of the Canaanites, the Jebusites. David finally conquers it, and it becomes a perfect capital city for him for a number of reasons. One, it was believed to be on the Mount in Jerusalem, the same place that Abraham went to offer up Isaac. So we'll put the temple up there, and this is the same place that Abraham offered up Isaac. It's a holy place. It's great. Secondly, it's on the border of the north and the south. Neither side claims it. The same thing like Washington, D.C. in the United States, right? We're going to take a little bit from each of the states. No one state's going to have control of Washington, D.C. It's an independent territory, so to speak. In the same way, Jerusalem can unite the northern and southern tribes. Awesome. So David's like, okay, like, I got a palace here. I got all these things going on in Jerusalem. This is perfect. How about I build a temple for Yahweh? That's what it's all about. God needs to dwell here in Jerusalem. And God says, no. I'm not going to let you do that, David. This is the first part of chapter seven. And the answer is, sorry, David, you can't do that because you know, you're a man of war, essentially, and it's not going to work. So let's go to 2 Samuel chapter seven now, verses 10 through 16. And I want you to, look, to listen carefully, and I want you to tell me who this is about. Who is this about? 2 Samuel 10, I'm sorry, 2 Samuel 7, 10 through 16. If somebody wants to, Chris, you want to read that one? And I will provide a place for my people, Israel, and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people, Israel. I will also give you rest from all, all of your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you. Your own flesh and blood and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, <clears throat> the floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from you before. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Okay, so now, who's this about? Jesus. Why? Why would you say that? That was a good answer, by the way, right? Jesus, God, love, <laughs> can't go wrong. Even if you're wrong, no one can be upset. No one can go, that was a dumb answer. Where'd you get that one from? <laughs> so why would you say that or what anybody want to chime in with john or somebody else i'm just yeah, talking says, to david so what was that gracie he's talking to david so okay and he's talking to david he's, and 
in Jesus is, is a descendant of David. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Very good. All right. Somebody else. Is that Peter? Is it got a comment? Oh yeah. <clears throat> it was just saying that um, love will never be taken away from him. And then inflict pain, I think. Or oh, okay. Yeah, that verse is actually interesting, right? So you're right. It says uh, his throne will be established forever in verse 16. His kingdom shall endure before me forever. His throne will be established forever. So Jesus fits very well. But there's a reason to say this ain't Jesus. What is the reason this passage to say, well, maybe it's not Jesus? Because of the rod. Yeah, right before. What does it say right before it? I will punish mm -hmm. it when he does wrong, which Jesus yeah. doesn't do wrong. Exactly. I will punish him. So it can't be. It can't be Jesus. When he commits iniquity, uh, that ain't going to happen. All right. So in the context, this is going to be Solomon. I mean, this is, he will build a house for me. It's Solomon. Uh, okay. No problem. It's Solomon's going to do it. He'll, he'll build a house for my name. Solomon is the one who does it. There's no, no question in the biblical story. Solomon builds the temple. It's Solomon's temple. Everyone knows that. It's about Solomon. But then you're like, well, yeah, but wait a minute. Solomon didn't establish his throne forever. So maybe it's not Solomon. But nonetheless, it's Solomon. Now, let's note a couple things. First off, note that in verse 10, I think it is. It says, I will also appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them. Ah, this is garden imagery. God planted a garden in Eden. Remember, I've been saying that word plant is important. And we got to pay attention to it. Here it is. 2 Samuel 7, verse 10, I will plant them. And that's exactly what the language that's used in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 2. And secondly, it says, I'm going to give, give you a great name. That's like what he said to Abraham. And then letter, verse 12 my translation also says something different. I remember um, mine says, I will raise up your descendant after you, but it has a footnote next to it. And that footnote is literally your seed. So we, had, we didn't go this far in Genesis 3, but what's going to happen next, and I think we'll do this next week, is the serpent's going to be cursed. By the way, Adam and Eve are never cursed. The serpent's cursed and the ground is cursed, but not Adam and Eve. And the curse of the serpent's going to be I'm going to put enmity between or strife or discord or war between your seed, the seed of the serpent, and her seed, the seed of the woman. So what we know is going to happen throughout the story is we're looking for the seed of Adam and or the seed of Eve, which is kind of ironic because women don't have seed, right? The seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And it's going to be this constant warfare between the two. So the word seed here is actually very important because it reminds us again of Genesis chapter two and Genesis now Genesis chapter three. Ah, I will raise up your descendant after you or your, your seed after you. He'll come from you and I'll establish his kingdom. He'll build a house for my name. There's no question the word house, of course, is for the temple. And I'll establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So this is Solomon language. So this is, the, this is what we expect to happen. Now, so now what we want to do is we want to go to 1 Kings chapter 3, because in 1 Kings chapter 3, we're going to find the Solomon story. 1 Kings chapter 3, this is going to be the Solomon story. And again, if you're reading the story for the first time, you're thinking, okay, maybe this Solomon guy is going to be the answer. Maybe he's going to be the one that's ultimately going to do what Adam and Eve failed to do. So 1 Kings chapter 3, and we're going to start in verses 1 through 5. 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, if someone wants to read. And again, if you have any questions, please stop me. I'm going too quickly. Is it talking about the uh, Israel? Uh, yes, it's Israel. Certainly by the time we get to Isaiah, it's Israel. Right now, it's talking about the, the, the child or descendant of David. So initially, it was Abraham. Well, initially, it was Noah. But then it was Abraham. And then mm -hmm. we thought it was going to be Isaac. Remember, as you go to the story of Israel in the Old Testament, uh, Marcus, it's the seed of Abraham, but it's, and the word seed is a word actually that's it's plural, believe it or not, right? It's, you, know, you, you sow seed, you didn't throw one on the ground, you threw a bunch of them on the ground. The word seed is, it's called a collective. It's a plural word, looks like it's singular. But what's happening then is, we think it's going to be Abraham, and then it's not Ishmael, it's Isaac. And then we think, okay, it's Isaac. No, it's not Isaac. So, oh, it's, is it Jacob or Esau? Oh, it's Jacob, it's not Esau. And notice every time, by the way, it's always the second born. It's always the second born. Abraham, and then it's Isaac, not Ishmael. And then it's Jacob, not Esau. And we keep going. It's like, okay, it's not the first one. What's going on? What's going on? What's going on? Who is it? Oh, it's, it's Joseph. No, it's not Joseph. And then we get this clue in Genesis 49. Actually, it's from the tribe of Judah. Okay, it's 
going to be one of his descendants. It's from Judah. Okay, it's David. It's David. No, it's not David. So right now in the story, we think it's going to be Solomon. And so that's what we're kind of looking at. When we get through the Solomon story, Marcus, and then you kind of get to the prophets, like Isaiah comes along, Isaiah mm -hmm. is going to pick it up as this collective people of Israel, the nation. But then there's clues within Isaiah that says, ah, that nation is actually an individual person. The servant in the book of Isaiah is the nation of Israel. But then we go, ah, we know Isaiah 53 says the servant is Jesus. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter as a sheep before his shares is silent. That's Jesus. And then we realize, ah, Jesus is Israel. He is the embodiment of Abraham, the embodiment of Adam, the embodiment of the people of Israel. So, yep. Okay, let's go to 1 Kings chapter 3. If someone wants to read verses 1 through 5. Then Solomon formed a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her to the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and all and the wall around Jerusalem. The people were still sacrificing on the high places because there was no house built for the name of the Lord until those days. Now Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father David, except he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. The king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. In Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream at night, and God said, Ask what you wish me to give you. It looks like, okay, Solomon's, this is good. He loved the Lord. He's walking on the statues. And what happens? The Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream at night. Ah, remember when Adam, when God formed Eve, Adam was put to sleep. From Adam, Eve was formed. Everything looks good right now. He's having a dream. Here's the answer, verses 6 through 9. First Kings chapter 3, verses 6 through 9. And Solomon said, you have shown great and steadfast love to your servant, my father, David, because he walked before you in faithfulness and righteousness and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on this throne today or sit on his throne today. And now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father, David. Although I am only a little child, I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of the people whom you have chosen, a great people, so numerous they cannot be numbered or counted. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, able to discern between good and evil. For who can govern this, your great people? Bingo. I mean, done. Victory. Here we go. I mean, victory, Dan. This is it. We finally, it's finally done. Solomon does what Adam and Eve failed to do. This is the great story. This is what we've been expecting or been waiting for all along. Note verse four. He went up to a high place. That's where the temple, remember the temple is always on the top of a mountain. That's where heaven and earth meet on the top of a mountain. God puts him asleep. He's in having a dream in the middle of the night. You so know what? Love hey, the Lord. Yeah, Rob, go ahead. Yeah. Hold on one second. The high places. It's so funny because I've heard teachings on that that said that was Solomon's downfall, going to high places. But, but I think they're making it in reference uh, to there being a temple at the time, which when I read, there's no temple. So that's why he went to the high place, right? Well, yeah, so far, right? I mean, we, yeah. we don't know anything bad about this at all. Yeah. You have a couple clues. Words, if, if you read 1 Kings 3, 1 through 10, you can read this and do a victory lap and go, we finally have it done. Somebody chose the fear of the Lord. Right. Solomon right. could have asked for a thousand more wishes. He could ask for He could have asked for eternal life. Who's the guy that asked for eternal life and forgot to ask for, for the gift of eternal youth? And he just became an old man and lived forever. It's kind of a funny story. <laughs> but uh, so ask for eternal youth, ask for eternal life, and then ask for a thousand more wishes. That's what you do, guys. But Solomon doesn't do any of that. He asks for, and notice what it says in verse, verse seven. I'm like a little child. Remember, Adam and Eve were being described as not knowing good and evil yet, which is what a child doesn't know. You may not remember that, but we looked at the book of Deuteronomy and says, ah, not knowing good and evil is what a child is. So Adam and Eve were being described as a child. So Solomon is being put on a high place. He's in a dream and he's acting like a, he's like a child. He doesn't know good or evil. So good or bad. He wants to know it from God. So give me wisdom. Oh, this couldn't be better. 
Now, if we look at the passage a little bit more carefully, we might have a few red flags. I was, you know how when you read a story and you want to believe it's good, right? You, you kind of ignore the bad stuff. <laughs> so if we want to believe this is good, we, if we want to think Solomon is the, is the fulfillment of this and this is the answer, we might have skipped a few things. Like for example, in verse one, he married a woman from Egypt. What are you doing? Egypt is a place that's oppressed your people for all these years and you're marrying an Egyptian woman. So there's your first red flag. Verse one starts off right away. The, the writer of Kings is like, lest you get ahead of yourselves, uh, let me remind you what's going on here. And that is Solomon took a, a wife from Pharaoh's daughter. And the reason why he does it, by the way, is military alliances. That's why European history has always done that. Um, back in World War I, you know, Russia, Germany, and Britain were all, and France were all fighting each other. They're all relatives. They're all related because their kids have been intermarrying for like 200 years now. It's just one big family is what, what it really is. So same idea here, and that's where Solomon's going to get all of his other wives from as well. So no problem. Place in verse four, but we're not. That's not an alert because it says in verse three he loved the Lord. He loved the Lord. Commonly did this. He burnt incense on high places and he went up to Gibeon. Okay, cool, no problem. And now all of a sudden we're like, well, wait a minute. Is this good or is this not good? So let's keep going on. Verse ten, First Samuel, First Kings, chapter three, verse ten. I can read it. <clears throat> the Lord was pleased that uh, Solomon had asked for this. You know? There you go. The Lord was pleased that Solomon asked for this. So the fill in the blank is Solomon asked for wisdom and does what Adam and Eve failed to do. So the fill in the blank is Adam and Eve. Solomon asked for wisdom and does what Adam and Eve failed to do. There you go. We think this is great. There should be no problem here. This should be awesome. We, we have no problem. Uh, everything's good. Uh, let's go. Now, we, let's cheat, and we're going to go to, uh, all right, do we want to cheat or do we not want to cheat? That's kind of the question. Do we going to want the answer first, and then the passage will make sense, or we want to look at the passage and think, oh, this is great, and then find out, oh, it's actually not great. Which one do you want? Let's go with it. We think it's great, and it's, we're yeah. going to find out later that it's not great. So Psalm verse 20 of First Kings chapter 4, that's the next chapter. Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand that's on the seashore. That's, that's Genesis language, right? Abraham language, the promise to Abraham that you're going to have as many descendants as the stars in the sky, the grains stand on the seashore. They were eating and drinking and rejoicing. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the river to the land of the Philistines, to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. You're like, this is great. Solomon asked for wisdom and God's blessing him. This is, this is awesome. Solomon's provisions for one day, verse 22, was 30 cores of fine flour and 60 cores of a meal, 10 fat oxen, 20 pasture-fed oxen, 100 sheep besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fattened owl. He had dominion over everything west of the river. And we'll keep on skipping down to see verse 26. Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots, 12,000 horsemen. Wow, God must totally be blessing Solomon because he asked for wisdom. Verse 28. See, it says they brought barley and straw for the horses and swift steeds to the to the place where it should be, each according to his charge. Now God gave Solomon wisdom and very great discernment and the breadth of mind, like the sand that's on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the sons of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than all the men. Verse thirty-two. He spoke three thousand proverbs, and his songs were one thousand and five. Verse thirty-three. He spoke of trees. That reminds us of Eden. From the cedar that's in Lebanon, to even to the hyssop that grows in the wall, he spoke of animals and birds and creeping things and fish. That's completely Genesis language. Men came from all the peoples to hear the wisdom of Solomon from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. This is it. This is the victory parade. Solomon does what Adam and Eve failed to do, and God clearly blesses him as a result of that. That's what we want to think unless we know the book of Deuteronomy already. And the author of Kings is assuming that you know the book of Deuteronomy already. So you know that ain't what it seems to be. So Deuteronomy chapter 17 now. Deuteronomy 17, does someone want to read verses 14 through 17? Thanks, Chris. 
when you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us, be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your fellow Israelites. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not an Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt or get more of them. The Lord, for the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. Oops. Yeah. Oops. Right. If you know Deuteronomy 17 and it's written long beforehand, then you know uh, God's not blessing Solomon because of his wisdom and because he asked for the right thing. So Solomon does do the right thing. He does say, I want wisdom from you. And he does do what Adam and Eve failed to do. However, he still doesn't use the wisdom properly. And if you read the book of Proverbs, the answer is he didn't do his own wisdom. He didn't follow his own advice. And he multiplies wives. You shall not multiply for yourselves wives, 900 of them, 40,000 horses, you shall not multiply horses. And what happens? If you read the Solomon story, and if you keep reading the first Kings, what happens is somebody's got to pay for all that wealth. And the people pay for that wealth. And what Solomon mm -hmm. actually did, he got all that wealth from the king of, of Tyre and Phoenicia. And he ended up falling into debt to those kings. And he took the 12 tribes, and every month, one of the tribes, the men of that tribe, had to go serve as la in labor camps up north. His own men and people fall into, and fall into slave labor as a result of Solomon's quote unquote wisdom. Ah, Solomon's <laughs> not the answer either. So we're back to where we started from. Who's going to do this? And Marcus's question I, I kind of addressed a little bit earlier. We know what's going to happen. And that is what's going to happen is Jesus is going to come along and he's going to do it. Remember, remember Jesus, by the way, Father, take this cup from me. I don't want to do it the way of suffering. Is there another option? And in the garden, he's like, take this cup from me, but not my will be done, but your will be done. Jesus submits to Yahweh's will, even though Yahweh's will or God's will is the way of suffering. And there's your biblical story. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please subscribe to and like our podcast. You can follow Rob's blog at DeterminedTruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you next time.